The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for the season of Christmas and for the knowledge that you came down and became one of us and dwelt among us to raise us up and give us some of your divinity through eternal life. Now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. It has been so long since we have been back in Acts. <clears throat> we are now in chapter 23. And in chapter 23, um, we carry on a narrative that began two chapters ago. So let me hit the highlights. Um, Chapter 23 in Acts opens with um, Paul defending himself before the Sanhedrin. And what led up to that is that he had gone back to Jerusalem despite having been warned that there would be trouble in Jerusalem, but knowing that that was where his ministry had to take him, he had gone back to Jerusalem and he had <coughs> gone to the temple to undergo purification rites. Um, some, of the, um, some of the Jews from Asia Minor who had recognized him and had been among the, the ones trying to, to um, oppose him in Asia Minor, recognized him in the temple. A real row broke out. The temple was shut to Paul. Uh, the mob was about to take him away when a cohort of Roman soldiers showed up, um, like the cavalry in a Western movie, rescued Paul. Um, the tribune in Jerusalem um, allowed Paul um, the shelter, but had once he discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen, accorded him a certain degree of um, deference, which was due to a Roman citizen. And so he agreed to call the Sanhedrin into session there in the praetorium or someplace neutral um, and allow Paul to answer the charges that were being brought by the mob and by the Jewish authorities. So that's the, the background to chapter 23. And now in chapter 23, we get the actual trial and the aftermath of the trial before the Sanhedrin. Would somebody read Acts 23 verses 1 through 10 and we'll kick this off. I'll do it, having had a bit of a vacation. Okay, go ahead. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was, assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, 
we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, they are afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Thank you, Coffee. <clears throat> so here is this court session that quickly um, disintegrates into a <laughs> into something like a Bruegel painting, you know, this violent confrontation, these mob beating at one another, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them trying to get after Paul. There's a sense that in one of the previous chapters, Luke describes the crowd when Paul was addressing them getting all worked up and throwing dirt in the air and waving their garments. There's a sense in which one can imagine that Luke, who was not a Jew, who was a Greek, and the Greeks, of course, being Europeans, thought of themselves as rational and probably looked down on these Asiatics as, as highly uh, volatile people. There's almost a sense in, in the way Luke tells this story that he's kind of appealing to Theophilus, who he's writing to, that, you know, these, these people who oppose the Christian church are just a bunch of, they're crazy. You know, the, the rational thing is to support this Christian church because he never misses an opportunity to relate what happened in a way that, that puts them in a pretty bad light. The, um, the uh, opponents are always willing to do violence. They're always hair trigger, set off, and go crazy at the slightest provocation. We don't really understand what it was about what Paul said to the Sanhedrin that led to him being struck on the mouth. Um, there is speculation that Ananias was outraged that Paul was starting off his defense by saying that he was a devout Jew. Um, that gives us a glimpse, though, of what the trial was about, and we'll see it more clearly in chapter 24, because remember that for there to be a, a, a charge before the Roman authorities, there had to be an allegation that Roman law was being violated some way. And, of course, the Romans wouldn't get themselves involved in these intramural religious disputes, but they would be concerned about whether a particular religious practice was illicit under Roman law. There was the licit religion groups and the illicit religion groups, and we'll talk more about that later. We've mentioned it before. But that almost surely was what the Sadducees and the Pharisees were claiming of Paul, that he was preaching a religion that was illicit under Roman law, that is one that threatened the civil order, and the Romans wouldn't have any part of that. Um, but what we also see is that um, Paul appears to lose his cool, and this, this is a striking contrast from the way Jesus was so completely in control when he was being tried by the Sanhedrin. Um, Paul blurts out, you whitewashed wall. Um, that's an, it, it at least implies that he's calling them a hypocrite in the same way that you whitewashed tombs was a, uh, something that Jesus said about the Pharisees. But it may also be that 
it was a clue to a physical infirmity that Paul had. We don't have it directly, but he may well have been very severely nearsighted. That is, um, Ananias was known to have been a notorious glutton, so he was probably a big fat guy, and he was probably wearing white robes. And if Paul did not recognize him, he may have simply heard this voice from somebody sitting across the room who was very large and, and, and dressed all in white. And he might have therefore referred to him as a whitewashed wall because he couldn't tell that it was Ananias. And of course, when, he, when it was pointed out to him that that was Ananias, he, he acknowledged, I did not know. Or maybe Paul was being sarcastic. Maybe Paul was using his sharp wit, his debater skills as a good Pharisee, to answer back that surely if you were really, as, as he put it, um, I did not recognize that this was one of the leaders of the people. Maybe, maybe he was being sarcastic in the sense of if you really were one of the leaders of the people, you wouldn't be accusing me on these trumped-up, stupid charges. But however we read it, we, um, we do see that, that Luke is a very careful um, chronicler of events, even when subsequent generations of scholars are not 100% sure about what this meant. And we'll see more of this in a minute, that... <clears throat> Luke is writing down very carefully what happened there. Either he was an eyewitness, he was there and saw it, or he had an eyewitness who had related it to him, and he was writing it down very close to what Paul actually said. Now, one last point about the passage Coffee um, read. He discerned that the council was both Sadducees and Pharisees. Perhaps up close he recognized some of the Pharisees from the days that he was with Gamaliel. Perhaps from the way they were dressed, he could tell which ones were Sadducees and which ones were Pharisees. But he understood that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had very grave differences of opinion on theological matters, and he exploited that to turn them against one another. Now, verse 8, in my translation, is a parenthetical sentence. Is it parenthetical in any of your translations? No? Coffee? The one that you read? Okay. Well, parenthetically, it reads, in my translation, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Whether you read that as a parenthetical or not, whether your translation makes it a parenthetical, it's clearly Luke's commentary, Luke's explanation to the reader about why there would be a division between them. And notice that the way Luke sets it up, and I've checked several translations, and they all translate it the same way. The Sadducees say, and the Pharisees acknowledge. There's no doubt about which side of the debate Luke is on, and there's also no doubt about which side of the debate 
the Christian church is on. So in that particular um, in that particular, theologically, the Christian church and the Pharisees are in complete agreement that there is a resurrection, there is an angel, there is a spirit. The Sadducees say that there is not, but the Pharisees acknowledge that there is. There's no question about what Luke considers to be the truth and what the Christian church believes to be the truth. Copy? I always wondered what the basis of say, the, Pharise- the Sadducees saying there was no resurrection and I am rereading an old book by Henry Chadwick the Sadducees subscribed only to the Pentateuch the Pharisees subscribed to the Pentateuch as well as the scribal writings and you notice that he says in here da, 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 some of the scribes of the Pharisees mm-hmm. party stood up and contended sharply well the Pharisees the, the, the scribal tradition was that which they were carrying on. And right. they would have been the ones that would have defended the Pharisees against the Sadducees who were very narrow in their approach. That's, that, that's true. I, I, didn't, I didn't put two and two together about why that was, but it's true that the Pharisees took their uh, interpretation of the law from the, from the scribes. And the scribes, um, volume after volume after volume of commentary on the law given in the first five books, the Pentateuch. All of that commentary was based upon their understanding of their translation of the prophets as well as the law itself. So um, I, I didn't think about why the the, the the Sadducees might not have accepted the resurrection. I've always wondered that. Now. Mm-hmm found just a little blurb in the book last night when I was reading it. Great. Perfect. So, um, a big fight breaks out, and the, uh, the trial has to be continued, as it were. Uh, the tribune pounds his gavel, and he brings the soldiers in, and they take Paul back to the barracks, not as a prisoner so much as in protective custody, protect him from any violence. So, let's read on. Um, if somebody would pick up the narrative at verse 11 and read through verse 22. Let's see what happens next. Who wants to volunteer? I'll read it, John. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, 
the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 30 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Thank you. So, um, the plot is hatched to assassinate Paul, and the uh, Sanhedrin is going to be the, uh, the, the method, or the, rather the tool, for that plot to, to, um, to be worked out. Um, notice that Paul is completely unshaken by the news. Um, he could have called the tribune himself. He certainly had a little bit of credibility with the tribune by now. He could have gone to the tribune and passed on this hearsay, uh, double hearsay actually, speaking in the, in the um, purely legal sense. Right, Mike? <laughs> um, the, um, instead, he sends the young man uh, the son of his sister, his nephew. We don't know how the nephew um, came by this information. Perhaps um, some of Paul's family were connected into the Sanhedrin in some way so that, um, so that word leaked out and the, the nephew heard it and came to Paul. Paul was not alarmed enough to go and tell the tribune himself. He simply sent the young man. And the young man... He called the centurions and didn't even tell the centurions. He said, take this young man to the tribune because the young man has something to tell the tribune. Um, I think that Paul's sang-froid, his cool-headedness here, is clearly an example of the kind of moral courage that he has but has just recently been reaffirmed by this visitation that he'd received from the Lord. Because Christ came to him and said, you will preach in Rome. Paul knows that Christ's word is good. Paul knows that he will preach in Rome. So any plot that's going to prevent him from getting to Rome is never going to succeed. We know that Paul never met Jesus in the incarnate flesh. <clears throat> but this is yet another one of his encounters with the risen Lord that was, I take it to be somewhat similar to the kind of encounters that the original 12, or rather the surviving 11 apostles had with the risen Lord in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus would come to them in the upper room and simply appear and would be in the actual flesh. He would eat fish on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was, he was risen, but he was still very much there. And I think that probably, although I, you know, I can't prove it from Scripture, I don't think I can. I don't know where to look. 
But I think that probably the visitation from Christ to Paul is very much like that. I think if it, if Jesus had appeared to him in a dream or in a vision, um, I think that that might be different. We would we would know that uh, the way Jesus came to Peter when he was having that vision on the roof of the house and Jesus sent him all of those animals. Remember that back in chapter 10, I think, of Acts. Um, instead, this is a real encounter <coughs> with Christ himself who gives Paul the understanding that Paul will preach in, uh, in Rome and that he should keep up his courage. And sure enough, Paul keeps up his courage. It's a tribute to Paul, but it's also a, a measure, I think, of the kind of encouragement that he got from a real encounter with the risen Lord who tells him you will be in Rome. So the word of this plot is delivered to the Roman authorities and the tribune in perfect um, tribune way in perfect Roman way, is uh, demonstrating his, um, his Roman authority. He doesn't go all, you know, freak out on this news that there's an assassination plot. He doesn't broadcast it. He tells the young man, okay, fine, I'll handle it. Don't tell anybody else about this. The Tribune's got it under control. Frank? Are both... Sadducees and the Pharisees considered to be Jews. Yes. All right, and so Paul had appeared before the council, and he kind of split them because. That's right. All right, and then it says here about the plot. It just says the Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. Was that one or the other? Or I mean, it, I, that's. I, I, it's I, been the Sadducees because <clears throat> the Sadducees wanted him dead because what he was saying, and the Pharisees agreed with him. So, yeah. yeah so it's. Well, those words sometimes yeah. get used interchangeably. Right. Yeah. Or it may have been simply members of the mob, that is, not members of the yeah. of the uh, of the Sanhedrin itself. At, as you point out, and as Steve has affirmed, often in the New Testament, we see word uh, we see uh, the Jews used in a in a way that um, has sometimes been translated as the Jewish authorities. Um, I know that in the Gospel of John, there are many places where subsequent translations have, have substituted the Jewish authorities to make it clear that we're talking not about all Jews, but the ones who were the power brokers. Um, this, this group, and I'll, I'll talk about them in a minute because we've, well, let's talk about them now. Um, there was a word that we use in English sometimes, anathema. It's a sort of a, an obscure word, and probably not a lot of people use it in their normal conversation. But it comes from a Greek word uh, that originally literally means to be set apart. Um, but it always had a negative connotation. For example, in, um, in the Greek city-states, if one were a citizen of a city and committed some infraction that caused... Uh, the city to withdraw the citizenship and to expel the person into exile, uh, the term used is he had become anathema. In the modern sense, uh, for example, if I had 
not taken a day off on Friday and instead gone to the office with a head cold and exposed everybody to my head cold, I would have been anathema. Um, Paul, in the end of his first epistle to the Corinthians, writes that if anyone should reject and not love the Lord, he shall be accursed. And the word in Greek that he uses is anathema. Um, the word in verse 12 the Jews joined in a conspiracy and bound themselves by an oath. The word used there is a derivative of anathema. And so what we understand is that they had set themselves apart and kind of withdrawn into themselves for a nefarious purpose. It's a perfect use of the word in Greek. And so anathema is, I think it's a, it's a, Good word. You know, next time you're sitting around the dinner table and you have a lively conversation, work that in and just watch the looks of astonishment and admiration around the table. <laughs> Coffee. With regard to the question about the Jews were going to do this, that, or the other that Frank asked, my recent novel, I've come to the understanding that Jews are not a race of people. It is a religion more so than a than race. When you speak of the Jews in the Bible, you speak of a religious group, not necessarily a race. They are Hebrews. They are Hebraic people. They are, they are uh, people of the, the same racial stock as are the, the Arabs, Semitics. They are Semitic people. But right. Jews, when you speak of a Jew, a Jew speaks of himself as a Jew as being a member of a religious organization, not necessarily right. an ethnic group. Well, um, and I, when you say the Jews here, that would be those who practice Judaism as their religion, whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees, they probably were offended. And, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's like seeing riots in the Middle East or in, or in, in, in other places where they're religiously based. A lot of the people that, that are engaged in those riots have a fairly superficial knowledge of what they're riding over. They just have, they're impassioned by things that they've seen happen, and this is maybe what happened here. Well, there are also doctrinal differences among yeah. Christians. Well, yeah. um, there are doctrinal differences among Muslims. Sure. Um, they so, tell each other what the Muslims do. We well, sure, the Shia and the, and the, um, and the, and the Sunnis. Um, and, of course, um, there's... We understand Judaism in the first century the same way, that the, you know, there, are, there were these doctrinal groups who disagreed about um, specific um, details of their faith, and we see it most obviously illustrated here in the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But this mob may have been more like you know, um, these who took the oath who set themselves apart, these who became anathema, may have been more like the um, All right, so. or, or the or the zealots. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the uh, the twelve apostles was a zealot, and the zealot was not a religious group so much as a political movement that was violently opposed to Roman rule and was prepared to use uh, force to overcome the Romans. Yet another one of the apostles was a tax collector. The most um, queasling um, job that you could have uh, to be a Jew, to be a tax collector for the Romans. Another example of how in 
in, in pure Christianity that all these earthly differences are overcome, that they could both be members of the, uh, of the 12 apostles. Jonathan, it says here, and I may be making too much of a small point, but it says here, you know, as the mob was formed, and then it says they went to the chief priests and elders and, and brought them in to tell them what was going on. Right. Now, was, does that, would you assume that all the chief priests Elders were Sadducees based on that, or the no, majority they were both. of the elders probably were Sadducees. I mean, it's like you know, the group was made up of the Sanhedrin of people from two parties, mm -hmm. effectively. Okay. And so, you know, think about it like the House of Representatives. Okay, we got two parties, and but the control right now, the Speaker of the House is under a Republican, and so when you say the House of Representatives, or the Chief Priest, or the Speaker, and the leadership, you're talking about the Republicans, but there's also Democrats and leadership in that. So the leadership of the House is kind of split between two party groups. Well, the Sanhedrin was split between Pharisees and Sadducees, with Sadducees probably having the greater number of elders. But because because Paul was a Roman citizen, neither group had jurisdiction over him, really. But, mm. but religiously the they did. He was a Jew. He was a Jew, and they were accusing him of Jewish crimes. But a punishment would not he could not be punished without Roman approval. But that see, that? that was the same thing with Christ. They were acu right. accused Christ of things, but they couldn't punish Christ, and they effectively blackmail Pontius Pilate into saying, okay, he could be crucified because Pilate was the only one that could say it. Before now here he the Tribune has got a little more backbone than Pilate did. The, the he probably didn't have the skeletons in his closet. They're just a mob. It's, it's not like well, that's, that's right. This assassination mob, we don't know the extent to which the rest of the council was, the Sanhedrin was a party to this. We only know that the assassination mob went to the went to the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and we don't really know anything about what the rest of the Sanhedrin thought when they found out about it. We certainly don't know whether the forty ever starved themselves to death or not, but we know we're about to read <laughs> that that their plot did not work. So mm -hmm. let's read. Um, Verses 23 to the end of the chapter, which is 35. Somebody do that for us. I'll read it. Okay, go ahead. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which he was, they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, 
ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Silesia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thank you. Um, The governor, Felix, is in Caesarea, which is um, Caesarea Philippi, not Caesarea Maritima, which is the Caesarea that's on the coast. Um, Caesarea Philippi, well, maybe it is Caesarea, it doesn't matter. Um, let Let me make it clear. Antipatris is about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Um, we might scratch our heads that it says that the soldiers who had been told to take him all the way to Caesarea, half of them, no, like 400 of them went back after Antipatris, but it says it was according to their instructions. It actually makes perfect sense. Um, What doesn't make sense in most of the translations is uh, the way this, this military force was broken down. 200 Roman soldiers, 70 horsemen, cavalry, and 200 spearmen uh, in most of the translations, including the one that was just read. Um, that doesn't make sense because the, Roman, as, the average Roman legionary carried both a, a short spear, a javelin called a pilum, and a sword. Um, another translation calls them archers. The other 200 is archers rather than spearmen, which makes more sense because archers were a different category of soldiers in the Roman army than, um, than the average foot soldier legionary. It matters because um, that is a word that nobody translates very well. Some scholars have speculated that that word translated spearmen or archers actually refers to uh, men who are carrying extra horses. We know that it says in here that there should be extra horses for Paul. So Paul is riding on a horse. What makes sense, though, is that um, the, the part of the force that's on foot goes only so far as Anapatris. And the reason that makes sense is that Jerusalem is up on high hills and Caesarea is down on the coastal plain. Halfway between, or roughly halfway, is Anapatris at the foot of the hills. From Jerusalem to Anapatris is very dangerous territory. It's where, um, it's where ambushes could take place. The, the road has lots of switchbacks, and um, it's close country. Horsemen would not be much of an advantage um, in close combat in that kind of terrain. So you've got a lot of soldiers on foot. Nobody fought better on foot in close combat than Roman legionaries. And you would think that um, there are not 40 um, uh, Jewish plotters, as hungry as they might be, there are not 40 on earth who could handle a force this size, whether in close combat in the hills or out on the plain. Once they got to the plain, the horsemen um, could handle the job 
perfectly fine after that. So the foot soldiers go back to Jerusalem. The horsemen take him on to Caesarea. It certainly seems like an overwhelming force, but that's another indication, I think, of how in control um, Lysias Claudius, the tribune, really is. That's the first time, by the way, that we learn his name. We've, we've seen this tribune uh, referred to as the tribune in the previous two chapters, but only here when he writes this letter do we understand what his name is. Um, his, his letter is, according to Stott, <laughs> a little bit self-serving. Uh, he tells the, he, he relates in very detail-oriented way the, the strict facts of, of what has happened and why he's being sent on to Felix, but he does it in a way that sort of neglects to mention that he was about to flog a Roman citizen. Remember a couple of, a couple of um, chapters ago, he was going to examine Paul under, under flogging. That was a very a, a standard but very awful way to interrogate a prisoner, and Roman citizens were exempt from it. And um, he already had been told once that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he either forgot or didn't think it was w worthwhile to, uh, to concern himself with it. But when Paul mentioned it the second time, he, uh, he spared him the flogging. He, mentioned, uh, he didn't mention that in the letter, but he did, he did relate all the rest of the facts of the case. And we get a sense that the Roman authorities here <coughs> are totally in control of the situation. Uh, what's going on now is that um, he's being sent on to the governor who is um, Felix, and Felix is going to now assume uh, jurisdiction over this case. And um, it's being taken out of Jerusalem into the Roman garrison where the Roman authorities have their civil government, and it is in a city that the, the praetorium, um, which we heard read that he was kept under guard in the praetorium, had been Herod the Great's original palace. Herod had built it for himself. This is the Herod the Great who had, who had slaughtered all the innocents when he had found out from the three magi on the, on the epiphany, that, um, which it, I understand now it's not. Um, but the epiphany is, you know, Herod the Great, he was the one who had slaughtered the innocents. Um, this is the Herod who had built this palace for himself, and this was now the Roman uh, headquarters of this um, uh, Roman, uh, it was a state, it was the, the, the Roman uh, province of Syria, and this was the headquarters. Yes, John? What is Felix the governor of? He is the governor of Syria. And Syria is, a, is the, uh, the Roman name for the province that included not just what we know as Syria today, but also Israel. Jordan. Well, only the Jordan west of the Jordan River. The province of Syria was essentially that coastal strip from Asia Minor, which, the, which is a geographical term, uh, down to um, Egypt. And, uh, you know, bounded on the east by the Jordan River. So this is the top dude. This is what? The top dude. Top yeah, he's the, 
he he has the he has the title that um, that in 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 the Gospels belonged to Pontius Pilate. Felix is the governor the way Pontius Pilate had been the governor, although his jurisdiction had changed somewhat. Um, Herod Antipas, um, who had been over Galilee and um, areas close to Galilee in, in the Gospels, no longer was on the throne, and there was direct Roman rule there, too. So, um, anyway, um, the provinces change a little bit. In places, they rule through the local rulers. In places, they rule directly. But the Roman governor is, as you say, the head dude. We actually know something about Felix um, from Tacitus, a Roman um, historian, and there may have been others. But Felix, we know that the, the, the period of time that Felix was the governor of Syria, we know that Felix was born a slave, that he had a brother who was a favorite at court. He was a favorite both of Emperor Claudius and Emperor Nero after Claudius. Uh, we don't know whether the brother, or I don't know whether the brother was also born a slave, but Felix was a freedman, and he had risen to the position of governor partly through ability and partly through the fact that his brother was a favorite of the emperor, but we know that he was totally unscrupulous as an administrator, that he was ruthless, uh, that he had very little scruple, but we see here Felix receives the prisoner, the, the man under protective custody, he reads the letter, he um, questions him. What province do you belong to? Well, I'm from Cilicia. Um, I will give you a hearing. I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. So he's following, even though he's not a very principled guy, he's following the letter of the law. And we remember that um, I believe it was Edmund Burke said that if men were angels, there would be no need for government, but men are not angels. So we do have need for constitutional government. I think it was Burke who said that. Anyway, it's a truism in constitutional government. And here we see that even though um, Claudius Lysias and Felix are no angels, we see a great tribute to Roman rule and Roman law. And there is no point in either... Uh, the Gospel of Luke, or in the Acts of the Apostles, where Luke it shows anything other than the greatest respect for Roman justice and Roman even-handedness and Roman law. And I think that's an important point. It is not just Luke's personal point of view, but it is a gospel truth. Laurie, did you have a point you wanted um, to make? Was uh, Paul on a horse because of safety? because he was a Roman citizen, or both? Probably uh, safety and speed. And if, um, you know, the cavalry were there as an escort, you can imagine that the infantry probably were all around the group, that the cavalry with Paul in the middle on horse and spare horses were in the, the middle of this formation. And the, um, the archers, or whoever they were, were also on foot in the group. But once they got to the coastal plain, the cavalry went on with Paul mounted on a horse. And probably also it was to keep Paul from being worn out from the trip down to uh, Caesarea from Jerusalem. When you get out of the full of the gap, you can leave the infantry behind. There you go, right, 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 right. 
Um, thank you all for being here. Next Sunday we will not meet because next Sunday is Frank Limehouse's last Sunday as dean, and we are going to have one giant Sunday school hour in the nave, correct? Correct. Correct. Okay, so we'll see you back here in two weeks. Godspeed to you all. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>